tension. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. We're now in the second half of the program. We are in overtime. That is the second half of the show where we are online only. We have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors. Appreciate y'all tuning in to us. We've got another hour and a half, maybe even two hours if this interview on WZZA goes long. We'll see what happens, but I appreciate y'all tuning in. <clears throat> um, somebody said amazing in the chat and that sparked a conversation about Jesse Lee Peterson and he's this uh, right wing radio guy who also does stuff online and he's become something of like an like an ironic online sensation because he's like a caricature of what the he's like a caricature of what a left winger would say the most like depraved right winger is and and <laughs> uh and it's just it's very very funny um and so that sparked a conversation about him and that's kind of his taglines amazing amazing and um and so there was a there's some comments there about how um jesse lee peterson owned Ben, I don't know who they're talking about, Ben, uh, but also Destiny. Destiny is a streamer, Adam. Um, and Jesse Lee Peterson said that Destiny uh, has is using a girl's name. By uh, checkmate. Yeah, so d- pretty, pretty, dis- <clears throat> uh, pretty destroyed there. And so I said that uh, you know if I if I ever get on JLP, then that's how I know that I'll have made it. Um, that would be that would be very interesting. If I ever figure out what y'all are talking about, <laughs> maybe I'll make it too. Um, I, I I am aware of slug burgers though. Now I that, that, oh, that I wanna... conversation like I'm with that. What I'm is following. a slug burger? Oh, okay. Let's, yeah. let's talk about a slug burger then. A slug burger is you take you know some cheap meat, usually beef or. It can be pork, and then you throw in uh, some meat extender, like soybeans, or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think they used to use, you know, flour, uh, potato cakes, like, I don't know uh, what all has been used for it. I think it has varied over time, but it's kind of a North Alabama, North Mississippi sort of thing, is my understanding. I've never really run into it anywhere else. Um Looking it up, it looks like maybe parts of Tennessee as well. Uh, but, you know, you can find them in uh, Athens, for example. Um, Dubs Burgers is, hmm. is a place that sells those. Um, you know, it came out of the Depression or, you know, I, I don't know if it came out of the Depression. I know that it, uh, I think, became more popular during the Depression. Obviously, you just couldn't mm-hmm. make your meat last a little longer. So you put some filler in there, <laughs> cheap burgers. Um, 
yeah, it's kind of a classic. Um, are they that great? You know, uh, depends on your taste. Uh, it's kind of its own thing. Uh, I sometimes get a, a just a hankering for some some slug burgers, some dubs uh, in Athens, uh, but then usually I satisfy that craving. I'm good for a while, but you know, it, it is a classic. It's worth trying if you've never done it. Right. So yeah, way to go, Strom, for uh, for the Slug Burger educational seminar today. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate the opportunity for that. Maybe I'll get a Slug Burger next time I'm in the Shoals. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, was the France EV transition clip was that the one that didn't work you last know, week? I think that maybe that was the case. I'm not sure. Okay, that may have been the case. So we can we can save that. Um, you want to talk about? Uh, little bit of what we've been up to the last week sure yeah i know you've you've been like a guest speaker uh, uh you, yeah you know we've both been quite busy lately and at a lot of meetings and doing lots of talking and all that kind of stuff so uh yeah what, what you been up to jacob yeah i have been actually we do we we've got one caller actually though so before we start talking about that and we may may not get to what we've been up to because i do want to get the caller uh, and on it, it and on the on the line if we can if we've got time for it so um yeah let's bring him in it's infinite content yeah let's uh, see if i can yeah, make that let's bring work. him in for just a second before we uh go to our guest fellas how are you all this week doing good how are you oh uh, gosh a couple of days this week i got beaten to non-functionality at work um just mm. um and I work at a pharmacy, so um, I just wanted to bring up, just touch on what Sean Fang's doing and and relate that to other industries. Because pressure um, busts pipes. Pressure also creates diamonds. Because they put that pressure on um, port and they got the diamond of that contract. It's tentative, mm -hmm. but it's still a good thing. Now, I don't know if you all are aware, but uh, pharmacies, pharmacists and uh, pharmacy techs are planning on doing a walkout on the 1st of November at, like, Walgreens and CVSs around the country. This is so strategic because you you can get a new, another office worker. You aren't just going to pull a pharmacist off the street. Right. It's very tactically, tactically done. It's, um, and if these pharmacists keep walking off the job, it's going to cause a public health crisis. So these companies need to uh, give um, pharmacists more uh, help and more staffing. Otherwise, they're doing, going to do themselves a great disservice. And they're applying pressure in a way that is making all other pharmacy chains, you know, like the supermarkets and like Walmart and other people, uh, look at that with uh, great alarm because they're like, if we keep putting um, – putting extra pressure on our um, pharmacists and the staff, we could be in the same situation. I just wanted to uh, point that out real quick. Um, SEPTA avoided their strike. Oh, did you all hear about the, I think it was in Sweden, uh, that Tesla workers went on strike at one of their plants? I actually saw that, yeah, just before we started the show. Uh, I did not know that. That's cool. <laughs> hadn't hadn't read anything about it other than the headline, but yeah. And good old Milner Husk has uh, lost another $28 billion in value. I'm like, he is he's one of the most – only – no, actually, he actually exceeds Donald Trump in, in netness and um, 
management because they showed that Twitter uh, usage has dropped like <laughs> something like twenty uh, percent or something like that since he took over. Mm-hmm. It might be even more than that, but I just want to um, get you all's thoughts on uh, those topics. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's well, been a dramatic decline in in the Twitter usage. I, I've seen that as well. I'm not a Twitter mm-hmm. guy, but I have seen uh, how he has totally just you know tanked the website. Yeah, uh, and I also want to. I, I do want to bring up one thing, and it's a, a tough topic, but the state of Israel has cut off all communication. Um, like uh, cellular and internet in Gaza. And you only do that if you're about to engage into some heinous actions. So we should all have solidarity for the Palestinian people. Not Hamas, but the Palestinian people. Because they yep. do not deserve the treatment that they're receiving. Yeah, it's, it's really... By Egypt. Yeah. Not by Israel. Yep. Appreciate the call, Infinite Content. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk next week. You will yep. take it easy. Yeah, it's definitely very scary what's going on in in Israel. Um, <clears throat> really, um, genuinely sickening. Um, oh, and have I, we got I, our guest on? Uh, let's see here. No, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Uh, while we're waiting on our guest, I do want to lift up the uh, UFCW put out a statement about the you know the pharmacy walkouts that infinite content brought up Mm. um you know because they actually represent some retail pharmacists Mm -hmm. um and so they put out a statement um you know in terms of the walkouts that are already happening and the ones that are going to be happening and so um you know i want to just point that out a lot of folks maybe aren't aware that there are some unionized pharmacy staff um and so this is a really you know it's an interesting action uh i know i used to be a customer at walgreens i could not continue to be a customer at walgreens it was uh unbearable and you could tell how overworked the staff was and it was a constantly rotating staff mm-hmm. um and it was a never-ending cluster every month trying to get medication from them uh and so i had to just leave um and i had been going there for years just because it was the closest place to my house it was most convenient right right? and um you know so many of these pharmacists are going through it and the staff are going Mm -hmm. through it uh so shout out to them uh and you know appreciate infinite content bringing that up yeah absolutely uh well keep an eye on the zoom let me know when tom joins um but yeah i can go ahead and start talking about what I was up we up last up to last week. The first thing um was immediately or the day after the show was over last week, um, I drove down to Montgomery at like, <laughs> like five in the morning. Ugh. It was terrible to um to fill a speaker spot at the Machinist State Council convention and um and uh one of their speakers canceled at the last minute. So they, they knew that I was relatively close and asked and and, and the guys, uh, the guy's quote was, uh, I know you've always got something to say. So, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so he asked me to come down and, um, you know, I worried about it for a while and I decided that I would. And, and so I did. 
and um, it was it was well received. I, it seemed like I uh, didn't have anybody tell me to you know uh, go f myself or anything like that. Or, yeah, that's always so, good. Yeah, that's, that's always good. That's always good. Um, and had several people say they enjoyed it. Uh, had a couple of people say that they want to try to get me to speak at at different events and uh, or their local union meeting. Um, so we'll be looking forward to some of that follow up. But you know the. Uh, what I wanted to do with the speech was, and and when when he was asking me to speak, the guy who was booking it, he said, uh, "Bring a fire and brimstone, you know, br- bring some fire and brimstone." And I, and I opened it by say by recounting that and saying that I that you know Rico probably didn't know this, but I grew up in um, you know in a, a holiness church and what people outside of North Alabama would recognize as Pentecostal. Um, <laughs> and so everybody laughed because I know how to, uh, I, I've heard very many fire and brimstone sermons, but, um, but you know, what I wanted to do was basically talk, uh, was tie kind of the, the moment that we are in today to the eternal task of the labor movement, which is basically to organize, 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 and to do that by showing how, you know, we've got so much to be happy about, genuinely so much to be happy about uh, as a labor movement in 2023, Um, you know, with uh, what's gone on at UPS, at the big three, uh, with the Teamsters, with UAW, um, all of these strikes, a bunch of people winning, a record approval rating, 90% of Americans under the age of 30 approve of unions. Um, really, a, in many ways, a great time to be a unionist. But in many other ways, it is, you know, we're depressingly at more of the same. We have, we're still at a historical low point for unionization. The last year, 2022, was the lowest year ever for union density. We have never had fewer union members as a percentage of the working population than we did in 2022. Never since we've been keeping records, right? Um, Strikes are still, like I said, at a historical low uh, so far this year. Only about 470,000 people have gone on strike, whereas between 1950 and 1980, at least a million people went on strike, sometimes as many as 4 million people. And that's when we had a population of about half of what we do today. Um, And so then it is incumbent on the labor movement And in particular, the people that go to these conventions who are, you know, by their nature, by virtue of the fact that their local has sent them to these conventions as delegates or as delegates by virtue of their office, it is on them and on people like me, people like them, more than really anybody else to turn the move, the the moment that we are in right now into a movement. Because if we don't, you know, it's going to be so much more difficult if we, you know, let all of these opportunities that we have right now slide. And so it's up to us to win the very best contracts that we can right now and to use those contracts to go out and organize new shops and bring new workers into the labor movement. Because if we don't grow, we're going to die. And that is the that is the task that we have right now. Um, we can't let this moment slip away. We've got to make use of it. And that was kind of the, uh, the, the point of my speech and, um, it was well-received, appreciated that. And, um, 
that theme was uh, echoed in you know several of the speeches at the Alabama AFL-CIO convention last week, which I went to. I was a delegate uh, representing the Labor Council up here. Uh, they had several speakers. Uh, Sarah Nelson was there uh, from the Association of Flight Attendants, Cecil Roberts from the United Mine Workers, um, Charles Clark from the National AFL-CIO, um, Stuart Applebaum from the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, and a lot of words about organization, the importance of organization, the importance of um, you know winning and being effective, and militancy. And uh, so you know, I am cautiously hopeful, somewhat hopeful that a lot of the attendees will take this those speeches back and try to actually have those speeches motivate them to do something different. Because if we keep doing the same thing that we've always been doing, we're never going to, we're never going to build on this moment that we have right now. Um, and, and, you know, I say cautiously because it's not uncommon actually, you know, at these conventions to hear really rousing speeches calling for organization and militancy and fighting the boss and winning and all this kind of stuff. And then nothing ever really comes of it from the delegates. They don't really take it back to their locals and do anything with it. It doesn't, um, it doesn't move them to action beyond standing up and applauding in the convention hall. Um, but you know, like I said, uh, you know, when I was talking about my speech, we're in, we're, we really are in a, in a different moment for labor. And so hopefully the moment that we are in combined with some of the calls to action that we heard at the convention from myself and from others, uh, from other much more important labor leaders in the country will, uh, will spurn some of these folks to action and, and, um, including myself and, and Adam to, uh, to do more and, um, to, to, to bring more people into the struggle. Cause, uh, you know, I said do more, but me and Adam can't really do more. The, the thing that we need to do that, that, that I need to do certainly is to bring more people in and delegate some of the tasks that I have to other people for my own sanity so that I don't burn out. And this is going to be the same for all these other people because so much work gets left on so few people's laps. So it's for our sanity so that we don't burn out and we can continue serving the movement, but also for their own good, for the people that we delegate tasks to, it will help them, it will educate them, it will build them up, it will uh, reproduce ourselves as leaders. Um, so so that's that's kind of, uh, you know, some of the big things that I've been up to. Uh, there was an executive council meeting talking about organizing at the Alabama AFL-CIO um, that I thought was productive and useful. So um, looking forward to hopefully seeing some of that uh, come to fruition uh, some of those uh, some of those exhortations to action. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate all that, and um, you know, I was there with you for some of that as well. And uh, but but before we even get into that, I wanted to just let you know that Tom is in the Zoom, so uh, we can awesome. talk about waging a good war. Really looking forward to that interview. Uh, and uh, let's put a pin in that discussion because I definitely want to come back to uh, to your speech and, and to my thoughts about the AFL-CIO convention as well. Yes. All right. So join us now. Joining us now is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, 
Thomas Ricks, uh, joining to talk about his book on military history, military strategy of the civil rights movement. It is called Waging a Good War, a Military History of the Civil Rights Movement from 1954 to 1968. Uh, I do have to admit that I, uh, sir, that I have not finished the book, but what I have read has been very intriguing. I very much uh, will be finishing this, and um, there's there's a lot to learn. As in, in your introduction, as, as you're talking about, you know that, that this is that the military lens of the civil rights movement is never really even you know e even even recognized, much less kind of delved into in the depth that you have in this you know uh, three hundred some odd page book, and so. Um, Looking forward to the conversation. Appreciate your time. Um, could you introduce yourself for the audience? Talk to us about some sure. of some of my your name work. is Tom Ricks. Um, I used to be a journalist. I'd say more. I'm now a book author for the last decade or so. Uh, I think this book is the best book I've written. It's almost the sum of my knowledge, uh, and it goes to exactly what you were just talking about at this um, the convention. As I was listening to you, I was thinking, this is what the civil rights movement, the classical civil rights movement, was so good at. Not just exhorting people, not just inspiring them to action, but giving them the tools of action. Um, remember, um, what they would do is they say, when you get home, this is what you are going to do. This is how you can do it. Uh, they had very specific schools down at Dorchester, Georgia. Uh, they would say, this is how you make a long distance phone call. This is how you talk to a racist sheriff about your First Amendment right to, po to peacefully uh, protest and to petition the government for change, that you have an absolute right to do that under the Constitution. Uh, what they did was teach confrontational nonviolence. I think it's a much better word than passive resistance. It, was, it wasn't passive at all. It was about grabbing the opposition, the enemy, by the lapels and not letting go. What's striking to me about it, it wasn't about mass numbers. They were inspired by Gandhi, who said he'd much rather have a small group of disciplined protesters than a large group of undisciplined ones. Remember Gandhi's salt march, very famous in the 1930s. He marches to the sea against British imperialism and for Indian independence. It was less than 100 people. Now, crowds of 50,000 would meet them at certain places, come out to welcome them. But it was an incredibly small, disciplined force. And I think this goes to the labor movement today. Uh, the, the thought that, first of all, we have to be trained and well-organized. Second, we have to be disciplined in everything we do. And third, we have to be sustainable. Uh, one of my favorite people in the entire civil rights movement is James Lawson, who trained a lot of people in Nashville, who went on to become kind of the working level leaders of the classical civil rights movement. People like John Lewis, James Bevel, Diane Nash. And he taught them the key to a successful uh, protest movement is not one big demonstration, it's several intense, smaller demonstrations, 
What really terrifies the opposition is not the big one, it's the fact that you're coming back again tomorrow and the day after and the day after. So in a nutshell, what I'd say is the civil rights, civil rights movement was not about passive resistance. It wasn't about bop me on the head, I don't care. It was if you bop me on the head, I will be back tomorrow and I'll be back with another person. And if you bop us both in the head on the third day, there'll be three of us. And day after day after day, I think Birmingham there in Alabama with you was the classic example of this. The big civil rights demonstrations there in the spring of 1963 filled the jails, overwhelmed the city, and imposed a cost on Birmingham that Birmingham is still paying. Uh, this confrontational nonviolence said, what we will do is impose cost on you that you cannot imagine. That you know how to use violence. The American power structure, the caste system is fluent in the use of violence, but you don't understand nonviolence. You won't understand what we're doing. And ultimately, we will prevail without you ever understanding what we're doing. Mm. You, you talked, there, there was a lot there and talking about you know, the importance of, of, of strategy and discipline. And I think that that is the the discipline and and the knowledge of, you know, how to interact with police. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? When are we going to stop? Uh, why are we doing it? You know, uh, this is all so absent from many of the most of the protests that you're going to see today about basically any topic you know somebody th th there was a call to come out to uh you know to the to the courthouse and and so that's what people do there's very very little if any of this kind of preparation or idea about how we want to do what we want to do it and, and uh evaluation after it's over about whether we met our goal Right. This is the we do some of this stuff in the labor movement. And and I I'm sure that you're familiar with, you know, organizer trainings and you mentioned role playing in, in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't realize that, you know, they did this in the civil rights movement. But that's something that we do in our organizer trainings. We, you know, pretend to be, you know, scared workers, anti-union mm -hmm. workers, antagonistic mm -hmm. workers, you know, passively supportive workers. And, and we're trying to move mm -hmm. these people into our support base up the ladder of engagement so mm -hmm. to speak um and 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 you know but all of that is kind of in the vein of, of strategy that is not really you know you mentioned it's been kind of overlooked and the way that it is parallel to strategies of war and military uh has been kind of overlooked why do you think that is, and what do you think actually diving into it like you have can teach protest movements today and, uh, you know, the labor movement? In my most cynical moments, I think that if you actually taught the civil rights movement accurately in American schools, it would lead to a political upheaval in this country that the power structure greatly fears. If you taught how they actually worked, how they thought, what they did, um, it would almost be an instruction manual in recreating a more progressive America. Uh, you mentioned strategy, and I think that's really key. In some ways, demonstrations were the least important aspect of the civil rights movement. 
And though I'm a former journalist, I do kind of blame the media for that because that's what they focused on, the public manifestation. In many ways, the demonstration was the least important. The one thing you really don't want to do is have a big demonstration and not repeat it, not have a next step for people to follow through on. So strategy. I think the civil rights movement actually excelled in strategy and was and better at strategy than the US military was. Uh, the US military is very good tactically. They know how to fight. They know how to engage in a battle, but their leaders don't have a very good idea of strategy. What do you do after you get to Baghdad? What's, what's the plan for the next day? And in fact, America's generals like Tommy Franks kind of shuffled that off and said, that's someone else's problem. In fact, that is the key question for generals. And it was also the key question for early civil rights leaders as they trained and prepared and did this role playing and so on. The first question in strategy in the civil rights movement, and I think they were extremely good at this, was who are we? It sounds like such a basic question, but it's incredibly difficult. There's an old saying among military strategists, if you're not crying, you're not making strategy. Strategy is hard. So the question, who are we? Diane Nash, who is a young college dropout in Nashville, she moved into the YWCA, the uh, segregated one for Black people in Nashville, to work full-time on civil rights. And the way she put it was, we are people who will no longer tolerate segregation. We will not live a segregated life. And people would respond to her, Diane, you know, the South is segregated. What are you going to do about it? She said, that's their problem. I'm not going to live a segregated life anymore. What that meant was, we're going to walk into segregated lunch counters in downtown Nashville and ask for our lunch. And it was much more than being about a hamburger. It was saying, we will not live a segregated life. And from that flows a lot. As you see, from that flows tactics. Once you have your strategy right, tactics become much easier. Diane Nash, trained by James Lawson, after months of preparation, of role-playing, of people where they'd sit in church basements and they would have one group would be the protesters, the other people would be people attacking them, to prepare for the sit-ins. They had coffee poured on them, chairs kicked out from underneath them, cigarettes put out on their backs. They went in well-trained, and the people who really did attack them did exactly that, but they were trained for it. They were prepared for it. They did not fight back. And this shocked America, and it shocked the South. Who are these kids who are not fighting back? who are doing something very different, who are speaking a language of nonviolence that flummoxes the power structure. And that inspired people to try to learn how to do that. Other people learned how to do sit-ins. And that leads directly uh, to the Freedom Rides. Uh, a year later, Diane Nash, uh, her then husband, James Bevel, are key in the Freedom Rides and saying, we're gonna get on buses and ride through the segregated South and not obey the laws of segregation. And again, they did training, they did preparation. They actually sent out advanced scouts to reconnaissance the route to say, when you go to this bus station, the segregated white waiting room will be on your left and the segregated black waiting room will be on your right. 
go in and take a left, sit down in that, in that room, black and white together. Um, the, the preparation, the thinking through, it was almost as if the demonstration was irrelevant. By the time you went to the demonstration, you had a cadre of trained people who had talked through all this, who understood who they were, who trusted each other, and could go through the fight together. And then, as you say, sit down after it and said, okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And what's the next step? Right, right. And what do you think that, what do you think is gained by that last bit? What What is the most important thing that is gained by actually after an event or a demonstration or a sit-in, going back and seeing like, okay, how did, you know, how, how how do we feel about that? Did we meet the goal? Uh, what are things we can improve on? What are things that we did well? Like, what is what is the benefit of that? The benefit is you're able to change and adjust and improve and do better and do different. Um, you constantly keep the opposition on the back foot. You're not predictable. They don't understand what you're doing. The assurances that the opposition have given their leaders and the power structure fall through. So Birmingham, spring of 1963, is a good example. Martin Luther King, uh, Ralph Abernathy, and Fred Shovelsworth begin demonstrations in the spring of 63. The demonstrations actually are smaller than they expected in, in Birmingham. They're a little bit worried by it. And King ultimately calls in James Bevel. Bevel is a person who should be better known, a brilliant strategic thinker a young Baptist uh, minister training in Nashville, uh, and also someone who uh, was deeply uh, imbued with the, with the works of Gandhi. He had studied Gandhi closely as James Lawson had. James Lawson actually had gone to India to study Gandhi's approach to demonstrations. So Martin Luther King calls up James Bevel and says, Bevel, I need you in Birmingham. Things aren't going well here. Bevel arrives and says, okay, here's the problem. In Birmingham, the adults are afraid to demonstrate, and for a good reason. You essentially have a totalitarian system here. The police will crack down on them, they will lose their jobs, and they will suffer economically, and they are already living on the edge here. So Bevel comes up with a different approach. He says, I'm going to recruit high school students and even younger elementary school students. And I'm going to fill the jails of Birmingham. And that imposes a cost on the city while not imposing a cost on the adults of Birmingham that we're asking to demonstrate who can't afford to do so. And Bevel is also innovative in how he recruits. He doesn't just go stand on street corners and say, hey, kid, you want to be a demonstrator? He goes to the two most popular DJs on Black radio stations in Birmingham, uh, Tall Paul and I think uh, Shelly the Playboy. And he explains to them what they're doing and says, I want you to go on the radio and invite the student leaders, cheerleaders, uh, presidents, club presidents, uh, football captains, quarterbacks. Come on down to a lunch and I want to talk to those kids. And then he uses those kids to recruit more. And he finds the kids can't say, mommy and daddy, I'm going to a demonstration. Parents won't allow it. But if the kids say, I'm going to church, Parents can't stop it. You can't tell your kid not to go to church. So every night they're holding training sessions in church. 
And Martin Luther King comes back to Birmingham and says, Bevel, what have you been doing? And Bevel says, I'm ready to go on the street with hundreds of kids. And King doesn't believe it. He says, really? And he says, uh, King says, show me. And so Bevel takes him into the uh, 16th Street Church in, uh, in Birmingham and says, this room is filled to the rafters. Kids, tell Dr. King, are you ready to demonstrate? Hold up your hand. And every single kid in the room holds up their hand. A thousand kids maybe at that point. And King says, I can't believe it. And Bevel says, we're doing it. And they start marching out in cohorts. He has planned it. They have planned the route. Uh, they said, you, you know, this group is going to go this many blocks. This group is going to go that many blocks. By seven minutes, you're going to be at this spot. And almost they never almost make it to seven minutes because they get arrested. Very soon, the jails of Birmingham are packed. And this has got the, the local police on the back foot. Bull Connor, the chief of security for the city of Birmingham, doesn't know what to do. And so he says, I can't arrest anybody more. I filled up the jails. I actually filled up the fairground out, outside Birmingham with more kids. And then more kids are keep on marching, marching and more. And uh, Bull Connor makes a faithful decision. He, at that point, calls out the fire hoses and the police dogs and sets them on kids, some of them as young as eight years old. Now, the city of Birmingham wasn't surprised by this. That's what you do, you know. With the, but they, the city of Birmingham, the white power structure, had been assuring uh, the rest of the country, don't know, don't worry, we know how to handle black people. We're, we're familiar with them. We grew up with them. And then the nation sees fire hoses and police dogs attacking children and says, if that's the way you handle black people, if you handle what you call the colored problem, uh, we don't, we're not buying it. We're not going to live with that. And this is a great strategic triumph for the civil rights movement, really brought about by James Bevel, considering the situation and saying, let's take a different route, a different step here, and preparing these kids for it. The kids knew exactly uh, what to expect. There's a great interview I read with a woman, now quite old, who was eight years old, being held by the police. And the police started asking her about communism and Marx. She said, we didn't talk about that stuff. We talked about our rights. Uh, this is preparation, that the police were taken aback. These kids were serious. Uh, so there's a lot to learn just from how they think about it, the discipline with which they approach it, uh, with which they think through strategy, and that leads to tactics, and they prepare their people tactically, give them the tools they need to carry out the tactics, and then move on to the next issue. Why do you think it is, what was it that led them to come upon the tactic of nonviolence. Uh, you know, all these demonstrations, it, it's all nonviolence and purposeful and aggressive and all of this, but it is all, you know, the, the, that's kind of the marker of the civil rights movement is that it's nonviolence. What was it that brought them to that? Yeah, and I got to say, it's confrontational nonviolence. It was a way of dealing with a very violent system. And this was the problem, uh, especially in the South, but across America. The American power structure is fluent in the use of violence. You had to find a different way to confront it than with violence. And Gandhi was a very inspiring example. Um, they, they looked to Gandhi. They learned a lot from Gandhi. 
I think the key bridge was the Black Church, the Black Baptist Church in the South especially. The Black Church had not been active in civil rights. But looking at Gandhi um, could say, yes, there's a religious aspect here that we can possess, we can own. And the Black Church steps up in the late 40s and early 50s in the South in a way it had not before. And I think this is probably the historical accident of World War II. Uh, Ralph Abernathy was a World War II veteran. Medgar Evers was a World War II veteran. veteran. Um, somebody who should be better known, Amzie Moore, a brilliant resistance leader in Mississippi, was another uh, veteran of World War II. And so I think they saw that the military structure was useful. They saw the Black church was now willing to enter into this um, this area for the first time to push the issue of civil rights. And the moment came together with this generation of young people, one million uh, Black Americans had served in the armed services in World War II, most of them from the South. And they were ready, they were willing. And yes, they also could resort to violence. One place uh, down south of, um, South of Nashville, Columbia, Tennessee, uh, right after World War II, had some violent confrontations. And the police, they were shocked that the young black men there, um, almost all of them veterans, knew how to use firearms, knew how to fight in a combat formation, and were willing to do so to protect their neighborhoods. And if you had... Um... You know, all of this is really like you like you mentioned at the start of the interview. This is all really um, understudied and under understood, um, it, especially in the uh, schoolhouse telling of the civil rights movement. You know, in particular, the thing that that I think of most as kind of the uh, the um, archetypal example is Rosa Parks. You know, it was just spontaneous. She was tired, you know, no other reason. And then spontaneously, additionally, everybody came out and supported her in the Montgomery bus boycott. And this was all this was all spontaneous. Right. And and you said that, you know, it, you, you think that if, if people actually understood how how this all happened, um, then it might would better prepare people to, to, you know, create a better world themselves. And, and that may be why, you know, we don't teach it that way. If you were able to teach. If, if you are able to in, import into the lesson plans of a U.S. history teacher um, the real, actual, accurate beginning-to-end telling of a certain episode um, in the civil rights movement, what would it be and why? Well, there's actually a good example of this was the Freedom Schools in Freedom Summer, Mississippi, 1964, when they actually went in and taught Black kids their rights. Uh, which was actually illegal to teach uh, to Black kids. They also talked with foreign languages because foreign languages were not taught in any Black schools in Mississippi. They basically liberated these kids. One of the freedom schools did something I love. They studied the Declaration of Independence, and then the teacher said, why don't you write your own declaration? And they did. It was a Declaration of Independence from segregated Mississippi. They said, we have a right to have police protect us instead of beating us. We have a right 
to pave streets in our neighborhood. We pay taxes, and that should pay for some asphalt around here. We have, most of all, have a right to vote. This was not something that was told Black people in the South. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer famously said she didn't know she had the right to vote until I think it was James Bevel and um, and a couple of other civil rights workers came by and said, you know, you really do have the right to vote. And she said, well, it's hard enough to register here, let alone vote. Uh, but that really did bring about change. I think the key thing that isn't taught is how effective the civil rights movement was. It really did change things. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't feel that way these days. I think this nation is going through a horrible time. Uh, I wake up every morning just stunned by the situation we're in. Yes, there are some bright lights. Uh, I was really pleased and surprised to see the UAW work so successfully uh, in its, its strikes and, and in a targeted, thoughtful, careful way achieve their goals. But the civil rights movement, uh, it's not taught how, how they did what they did. Rosa Parks is a great example. Uh, the, way Rosa, the way the civil rights movement is taught, uh, the summary that goes is Rosa Parks sat down, Martin Luther King stood up, and the civil rights movement was won. Well, that neglects the years of thoughtful preparation and organization that went into it every damn step of the way. Rosa Parks is a great example. Before she made her demonstration on a Birmingham uh, bus, oh, I'm sorry, Montgomery uh, City bus, she actually had gone to the Highlander School, a great uh, labor and civil rights school uh, in the hills of Tennessee. And she had sat down with a woman named Septima Clark, another great organizer. Septima Clark was the daughter of a slave in South Carolina had become a school teacher, and then lost her job for the crime of belonging to the NAACP. She's working at the Highlander School. She meets with Rosa Parks. They talk about the situation in Montgomery. The first question she asked Rosa Parks at the beginning of the week is, what do you want to do? And they work for a week and talk for a week. And at the end of the week of thinking about, about organizing and preparation and self-discipline, Septima Clark poses a second question to Rosa Parks. What are you going to do? And that's where the Montgomery bus boycott begins. It begins in Rosa Parks' mind with her decision about what she is going to do. And then the great organization that enables the Montgomery bus boycott to go on for over a year. All of it to make it sustainable and to impose cost on the opposition that the opposition doesn't understand at the time and is unable to respond to. That's the key to how these things work. Everybody knows what the civil rights movement did, they think. Few people know how they did it. And that's what I tried to talk about in this book. How did the civil rights movement actually do what it did? Um, you, uh, uh, I'm interested in what you think of today's social movements. I, you know, I mentioned today that, that it seems to me that, you know, all of this, the tactics and the discipline and the strategy is just really not there by and large. Um, but, but I'm interested in, in your analysis. I've come away thinking, uh, really inspired by studying James Lawson, is that the worst thing you can do is have a big demonstration, everybody pat each other on the back and go home. 
The size of a demonstration doesn't matter. The sustainability of a demonstration it was what matters. The fact that you can do it again and again and again. I think sometimes all a big demonstration do is blow off steam, and that's the worst thing because uh, the opposition has seen the worst you can do, and they shrug it off, and they go back to doing whatever they're doing, and they're not going to change. Uh, you're going to bring about change by sitting down in quiet rooms and talking about who you are, what you want to do, first defining yourself, and then going out and thinking about a long-term approach to achieving that. Uh, and I keep on going back to what Diane Nash said. She defines herself and her group as people who will no longer tolerate segregation. And when she's told, you know, they're going to kill you, she said, well, that's, you know, we understand that. Um, but that's not our problem. That's their problem. We are not going to live with what they're telling us we have to live with. And I think once you make that decision that you are going to define yourself, I think that's so key not to let other people define you. Um, I got to say, uh, I'm guilty of a little definition here. When you guys came on your show, I was just surprised to see two young people. I was so accustomed to thinking of labor organizers as old guys like me. Um, I think it's good to see young people. Um, and I think it's also good if the labor movement uh, is democratic in that it holds elections and has turnover. Uh, I remember the first uh, contract that I ever had as a union member, they screwed the younger people by preserving the wages of the older people. Now, I know why those old guys wanted to keep their wages, but they made a deal basically on the backs of guys like me in, in our 20s. Um, that's why it's important that the labor movement also be democratic um, and have votes that are allow change and interchange and new leaders to emerge. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate that and, and appreciate your comments as well. And um, I just, you know, I, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can take regardless of what movement background that you're coming from. But, you know, whether it's labor or elsewhere, um, I think there's a lot of lessons we can really take from this and, and learn from this history. Uh, and I really appreciate your strategic focus here uh, because that's the sort of, you know, thinking that we have to have. Uh, to actually make a difference. Um, and, you know, some of us do believe that we do need to make a difference uh, and we're not going to do it unless we do it. Right. So I uh, really appreciate that. Uh, sorry, Jacob, didn't mean to intervene, but I actually, wanna... I want to intervene here. One last thing I want to say, every book you write after you finish the book, you start having regrets. You realize things that I should have emphasized more. One thing I really should have emphasized more in this book was the key role of organized labor in supporting the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King and the people around him, um, Andrew Young, uh, Ralph Abernathy, SNCC, um, they had two key sources of money. Basically, uh, Hollywood, uh, Harry Belafonte became the sort of the conduit for collecting money in Hollywood and actually sometimes flying with a briefcase full of cash to Selma or Montgomery or Birmingham and, and handing it over so they could you know, go out and buy food for people who were demonstrating. The other was the unions. Um, UAW, 
Uh, several other unions, uh, uh, electrical workers, uh, were very dependable. AXME, you know, the government workers in New York City, very dependable in supporting and helping the civil rights movement at key times. Uh, and that's something I wish I had written more about. There's a whole book to be written on the financing of the civil rights movement, uh, how it worked, how important it was, and labor, organized labor, played a, an important and even revolutionary role in that. I think that's really interesting, and, and uh, I definitely think that's a history that we have to remember because, you know, labor has its own very mixed history mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, issues of race, when it comes to issues of yep. gender, and just justice more broadly. Um, and so it's it's worth really lifting up where labor has gotten it right and was on the right side of history and used its power for the greater good. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for that. Yep. Uh, Thomas Ricks, author of Waging a Good War, How the Civil Rights Movement Won Its Battles. Uh, really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you'd want to leave our audience with before we let you go? No, but uh, hang in there. Um, I think this country is going through a weird time. I never expected it. Boy, has my generation screwed it up. I think it's time for people in their 20s to take over this country. I would recommend, if you haven't already, uh, get Representative Justin Jones in Nashville um, on your show. Uh, I spoke with him in Nashville last year before he became famous, actually, before he'd taken office. Uh, and it was one of the best moments that made going out on book tour worthwhile. One thing that really struck me is Justin Jones had studied these issues of organization. He's using them today. Uh, he's the guy who, when he walked in, you know, they kicked him out of the legislature twice because the, he says things that the guys don't like. After the school shootings outside Nashville, he didn't say anything. He walked into the state legislature holding a child's, a baby's coffin. That was a striking moment. This is a guy who understands the moment and how to respond. Uh, at the end of our meeting, where we, we spoke to people, at the National Public Library, I was really struck. Justin Jones stood up and said, would you join me in singing? And he sang, we shall overcome. I love it. Yeah, uh, and, and we actually have, uh, we have something that we're working on um, for a couple of weeks from now that uh, that we actually had him on, on the list to reach out to. So, um, so, so we may be able to get him on the show. Um, and I was I was first introduced to him in 2018 when I heard him open for Nina Turner at a rally. So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I'm I'm a, a little bit familiar with with him as well, even before he kind of became a, something of a national sensation. So, uh, well, sir, good I appreciate luck and hang in there, guys. Yeah, thank you Thanks. so much. Appreciate your time. All right, folks. Uh, like I said, Thomas Ricks, Waging a Good War, How the Civil Rights Movement Won Its Battles. It is an analysis of military strategy in the civil rights movement. Check it out. It's good. Um, I'm looking forward to finishing it. And I know that once I finish it, I'm going to have a few questions that I would uh, that <laughs> I'm going to wish I had asked. But um but that's just the way that it goes. Yeah, I, re I really have enjoyed it so far and uh, enjoyed the conversation with Tom. And I just, you know, I think the more we in this movement can think strategically uh, and look at what works and what doesn't work and, and what we're doing wrong and what we're doing right, I think 
you know, we just have to be doing that uh, because labor has been encircled. Labor has been on a 50 year decline. That's not acceptable. And we see it in the conditions that are faced by working class people in this country and, and particularly here in the South. It is not acceptable. We can't keep getting those results. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a very timely book. I think it's um, something worth studying. And, you know, the more we can realize what works in social movements and what's effective, uh, the better we'll be because we have to make positive change in this country. It's long overdue. Yep, absolutely. Um, so the uh, so like I said, we are. Uh, last I understand, slated to go on Saturdays in the Shoals here at about noon o'clock. Um, so let's go ahead and dial in and uh, bear with us, folks. We may have a little bit of a little bit of quiet time potentially. I don't know. We may just jump right on the air, but we may have a little bit of quiet time before we actually get on, or um, or have a little bit of production type stuff. So, um, so yeah, you've got the number right, Adam. Yes, I am calling the number. Uh, I will. I'm not sure how I will know if uh, they're answering. I think you hear them answer. Is my is how I remember it happening. Um, we Thank just you for calling WZZA. Please listen for the following offices for promotions and what? front desk. For the general manager, dial one one. For sales and news desk. Do you have a keypad? Oh, not on, uh, not on, not on call in studio. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that we'll have to try again. Uh, we're gonna have to try a backup method, Jacob, because uh, yeah, call in studio. I don't think that's gonna go through for us. Um, well, is it just depends on? It's gonna just depend on um, if we get the right number. I think if we get the that that may not be the right number. Um, let's go to a break really quick. Sure. Yeah. Hey, this is Jacob Morrison with the Valley Labor Report calling in for hey. Saturdays in the Shoals. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Give me one, give me uh, 30 seconds. Okay, great. All right, folks, I believe that was Tori Bailey, host of Saturdays in the Shoals. Um, so we're going to be on with her in just a second. Hang tight. Hang tight. Um, Appreciate everybody in the chat. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, appreciate WZZA. We've been on the air there for 
Oof, how long two now? Two years, I think two years. Yeah, that's Jeez. great. Yeah. Uh, I love that we're out there in northwest Alabama, which is, of course, a union stronghold in some ways. Um, quite a few building trades unions out there in, in that area. That's where Jimmy Carter started his uh, presidential campaign. I missed around and caught a cold, and so I'm like, knit it up now. <laughs> no. So I won't sound all nasally on the radio. Trying not to. No anyway. worries, no worries. Okay, so are we ready? I am. Okay. In five, four, three, two. Hello, everyone. It's time for Saturday in the Shoals, and I am so fortunate I have Jacob Morrison on the line with Valley Labor Report. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I listen every week when they're doing all this conversation, all this talk about labor and rights and unions and workers and the the, the value of workers and, and being appreciated and being paid for what we do and all that kind of thing. And I always, I, I'm, I'm on the sideline going, yeah, that's right, and <laughs> saying things like that. So <laughs> I have an opportunity to talk with you this time and to be able to interact with you. So thank you very much for agreeing to take some time out of your Saturday to have this conversation with me live and in person. Thank you. Absolutely. H- happy to be here. Um, I also have with me Adam Keller, and we are uh, – so wh- what we do with our show is we have a we have a whole second half of the program where we are online only, and so we are just – uh, we're calling in from the second half of our show, streaming to streaming this to YouTube as well. So, um, ah. so yeah, looking looking forward to the conversation. Appreciate uh, appreciate your interest and your um, and your partnership over the last. I think we've been on we've been on WZZA for about two years now, or a year and a half. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. so definitely appreciate it and look forward to staying on WZZA for a long time to come. All right, so now let me try to sound more professional. Okay, let me, I'll just be honest with you guys. Everybody, I am on medication, so if I sound crazy, it's, I'm going to blame it on the meds. But <laughs> I'm really happy to have this conversation because it's been a long time coming. You've, you've talked about uh, uh, strikes. You've talked about Amazon. You've talked about uh, uh, what uh, has been happening not just around the state of Alabama but across the nation uh, we have we've we've seen I don't remember ever in our history us seeing a sitting president walk the line with with workers who are demanding to be treated fairly. I, I, I applaud President Joseph Biden for doing that. I'm seeing some some attention being paid to workers that we haven't seen in a while. For for a while it seemed as though there was this trickle down uh, all the. The, the rising tide will lift all ships kind of mentality going, you know, and, and it didn't really trickle down to the average worker. So the middle class was being squeezed from both ends. And I'm seeing now a, a bit of a shift. Do you agree with that assessment? Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, it would be really dis- difficult. I mean, I think even opponents of labor recognize that this is a shift. And we've seen, you know, in, in the business press, uh, CEOs of major corporations uh, really, you know, running around kind of uh, like a chicken with their head cut off, wondering about what to do about the moment that we're in where, um, you know, labor has close to a record approval rating. We have about 
Um, unions, uh, something like 70% of the American public uh, have a positive view of unions. 90% of people under the age of 30, um, unions are, you know, going on strikes more than we have in a long time, even though it's, you know, compared to before 1980, still still relatively low, uh, but winning big things. Uh, you know, I mean, the uh, lowest paid workers at UPS are going to be getting a 50% raise over the life of the contract. Uh, current temporary mm-hmm. workers at Ford with that tentative agreement that they just announced last week, mm-hmm. if the members ratify that, they're going to be getting a 150% raise over the course of the contract. Wow. Um, second wow. tier workers at Ford are going to be getting an 85% raise immediately if this contract is ratified. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, public opinion is definitely in labor's favor. Uh, labor is doing a lot to win. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we still have a we still have a long way to go to turn this into something more sustainable. Uh, we still okay. uh, only about one in 10 Americans are represented by unions down from a high of one in three. Uh, and that is really, you know, where we get our power from. The more people that join the labor movement and are a part of unions, uh, the, the better that uh, it is for everybody. Um, and so there, there's a lot of work to do, but there, we're really in a, a pretty unique moment in my lifetime, certainly. Well, one of the reasons that WZZA is so proud to be able to share with our listeners the knowledge that you guys drop every week is because we feel it's so important to educate the average person out there. We need to let everybody understand why it is that they want people who make things, who sweat, who roll up their sleeves and actually do the work to be compensated for the time that they spend we have been making, there's been this tendency to make richer people, rich people richer, and, and this money is going offshore somewhere. It's not being reinvested in our communities. But you have people who say, well, wait a minute. I can't believe they want, what did you say, 150% raise. That's outrageous. We need to explain why it is that it's important to see that the, the workers are paid fairly for their labor. Explain that, if you will. Yeah, well, it's super easy to explain that a hundred fifty percent raise for the temporary workers because the temporary workers are making making like fifteen to seventeen to eighteen dollars an hour at Ford, and that's how you know there's really been a uh, a, a a division in so many even union shops between you know, legacy employees who have been there before in particular, uh, a big cutoff point Mm -hmm. was uh, the Great Recession in 2008. Um, If you Mm -hmm. started working at Ford before then, uh, you're doing pretty well even now. You're having to work a lot more, more than you should have, frankly. Um, But uh, uh, but people that have, have started working after that, uh, and certainly that have started working there recently and they're temporary employees, you know, they're being just uh, completely abused by this uh, massively profitable company. You know, I mean, hiring somebody as Ford. It's different. Yeah, you're right. It's different if you've got a small company that maybe can't afford to pay large rate wages. But if you've got a company that's got they're making all kinds of profits, but not sharing them with the people who are helping them make the profits, it's vastly unfair. And I, I, mm-hmm. I, I want us to, to do a better job, I guess, of, of explaining to the people out there who are shopping. You know, they're spending money. They are supporting these businesses. They need to understand why it is 
that we need to work in solidarity with one another. So I, if you if you can, if you will, explain what a living wage is. Well, because somebody yeah. might hear you say, "Wait, seventeen, eighteen dollars an hour? That's not that's that's more than minimum wage. Minimum wage is only seven dollars and fifty cents, mm-hmm. or seven twenty-five, right? Seven twenty-five. Right. So, explain what a living, a livable wage is. A living wage. Yeah, well, you know, you started with, a, you know, with an allusion to, you know, the consumer. And this is something that, you know, employers really want to try to do. They want to try to get working Americans, working class people to think of themselves as consumers instead of as mm-hmm. members of the working class. Um, and that's something that we really want to push back against because uh, you are in some ways, you know, a consumer. But more than that, you're a member of the working class. Um, and, and that's how you know that that's your power base and and how you can kind of affect change in society and and these are the people that you should have solidarity with and and you know most of the times labor makes up a very small percentage of the uh, uh, uh of the product price and so if you look at ford you know that's what we've been talking about uh less than seven percent of the cost of the vehicle you go to you go to a dealership you pay seventy eighty thousand dollars for <laughs> outrageous price for one of these huge vehicles only seven percent of that goes to labor um and and so you know wait you, you wait, could... wait 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 I, wait i want to make sure nobody missed that because there, there was this I, I read an article and i want to say it was one of the fords himself who said something oh i hope we can come to an agreement you know we don't want prices to go up for the consumer we don't mm-hmm. want people to have to pay more for their cars just to accommodate these outrageous wages that these folks are asking for you said seven percent Yes. I don't think the average – I didn't know that. I bet the average person doesn't know that. Yeah, less than 7% actually, and that's what they want to do, right? And because the the cost – the the UAW in their live stream, Sean Fain, every week, has been doing a really good job of educating the people that are listening about how even if you're not a UAW member, your fight is much more – you know, your, your interests are much more aligned with the UAW than with Ford. Um, it, f- prices at Ford have increased in the past four years, since 2019, which is when they got their last contract. Prices have increased 40% for their cars. Wages have increased 6%, right? Mm. (laughs) Wait wait a minute, though, Jacob. Wait a minute. We had COVID. They couldn't get the parts. That's why the prices went up. That's the excuse. That's what I've heard. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm uh, wrong. Part of it certainly is, but I mean, we can look at analysis. All of the analysis, basically, at this point, is is showing that that 50 percent of the increase in price in prices has gone not towards higher wages from in a more competitive labor market, not towards you know increased material costs. Uh, or mm-hmm. uh, you know the supply chain stuff, but just directly to corporate profits and the big three, and, huh. and that's indicative in the big three. They have paid more to shareholders over the last four years than they did to UAW members. Like, think about that. That's why your voice is so important. We need to understand that, <laughs> and we need to be able to have these conversations in the grocery stores, in the barber shops, in the beauty salons. We need to be able to explain it so people don't think that workers are being greedy because they're not. They're Absolutely. And and you think and you know people think of that 
Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, and, you know, people think of UAW members and they think of of typically, you know, the legacy employees who do, you know, to be fair, have it relatively well off compared to some people, at least, you know, making thirty two dollars an hour or so. Uh, You know, that's a that's a reasonable that's a reasonable wage. I think thirty thirty dollars an hour. uh, You're starting to get towards this is this is a respectable, livable wage. Most people are happy with that. Um, And even at these companies at Ford. The CEO makes 300 times, not the lowest paid worker, the median worker, right? And then, you know, people say, and and so the the retort to that is that, okay, look, even if you got rid of his entire $21 million salary, you're, uh, you know, if you, and you distribute that across the 50,000 Ford employees, that's not going to be very much uh, per employee. And that's fair enough. But he is surrounded by a horde of executives who similarly make salaries in the millions of dollars, and they are surrounded by hordes of shareholders who, like I just said, got more money from the company than the workers did just because they own part of the company, right? Because they have money. And that's the difference, you know, that's really the divide in, in, in society, the people who, you know, the people who, who work and the people who don't, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. So if we were to try to create a new movement, and and I'd like to see us do that, I've always felt that we should be more economically aligned uh, or as as economically aligned as racially aligned. I think that there are times when we are divided and conquered on purpose, that there are these these uh, little bombs that get tossed into the crowd and, and, and it's intended to distract us from what's happening. When if we stop to think about it, we have way more in common, way more that aligns us than we know. And we, we really should be uh, uh, working in, in a concerted effort against those people who do not have our best interests at heart. So to, to that end, I would like to make sure that we are explaining our stances to the folks who should be thinking the way we do. And I want to make sure that we are, are, are having more of these kinds of conversations so that we can just make sure that people are, are, are clear about what it is that we're trying to accomplish here. I, what, what, how do you feel about uh, collective bargaining when it comes to maybe not shopping at a certain place until, you know, do we get the, the average citizen involved? You know, you, you're saying let's call them work working class, not consumers. I'm saying that they're both. Do we say, hey, I'm a member of the working class, but they're not treating me fairly, so we're not going to shop with this person anymore. We're not going to buy this particular brand anymore until we get them to 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 be more reasonable in their negotiation with us. Should we be doing more of that? Should we be boycotting? Yeah, that and, and that's a that's a great question of strategy. And by and large, when, when boycotts are not you know, organized by the people that that that, that are affected, um, it is it is honest. It, it is m- more of the same as far as thinking of yourself as a consumer. How can I how can I consume differently to make the world better? How can my consumer right. choices change the world? And that's just frankly. Right. You know, not going to do it. That's not going to cut it as a, you know, you're not going to change the world because you bought, uh, you know, this this type of pizza versus that type of pizza. Um, Now that as an individual. Right. And now the there are 
quest there are certain instances where boycotts can be effective but they have Absolutely. to they have to be organized and and we actually just we just finished a conversation with Thomas Ricks who uh mm-hmm. um wrote a book waging a good war about how much military strategy and tactics were used in the civil rights movement and uh mm-hmm. you know and so boycotts were obviously a big part of the civil rights movement but boy they were not instituted because somebody got on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC and said, hey, let's all do this or not do this. Uh, it was because people in the community who were affected by the uh, were affected by the thing uh, said, we're all going to do this or not do this together. And then on top of that, there was the peer pressure against folks who did not abide by the community's uh, uh, what the community had the decided decision. to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people who who rode the bus in Montgomery during the boycott, there was some amount Mm of (laughs) of uh, uh, coercion in the form of, you know, ostracization or, um, you know, people into doing the right thing. You know, how how dare you break the line here? How dare you go? Absolutely. See us all out here trying to accomplish something as a a collective. And so when I think there needs to be. Go ahead. Oh, no. And, and, and so, you know, when there is a strike or something like that, like mm-hmm. at a grocery store, you know, a lot of Kroger's, for instance, are unionized with the UFCW. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. the Kroger in your area goes on strike and you've got and, and the workers have a picket line in front of the business, absolutely, you should turn around and go somewhere else, even if it means going to a Walmart. And now you may think, well, that's strange because the Walmart, you know, their labor practices are are not at the, you know, typically they would maybe even be considered worse than Kroger's. But the people that are being affected are asking you to do this. And it is a very easy Mm -hmm. thing to turn around and go and do something else. So I'm not one to, you know, individually think about you tally up you know human scores and you know is this is this company that much better or do they you know what whatever i go by what the people that are affected ask me to do and so when workers are on strike and they ask for a boycott i'll boycott um but other than and that at the end of you the know day, if we change one company at a time we're right. making a difference yeah. yes yeah all right so wait a minute adam you're on here too I am. Weigh yeah. What, yeah. Weigh in. What, what do you think about the effectiveness of selective purchasing? Yeah, I, I agree with Jake, Jacob there in that it it has to be part of a broader strategy. And I, I also agree in terms of is it the demands of the impacted folks? So I think, yeah, with with a workers picket line in a strike situation, it's very obvious, you know, whose side you can be on. Uh, and it's, you know, as Jacob said, it's, it's an easy ask. Um, I think the I think boycotts is something that we do need to look at as a movement, I think, more holistically, though, personally, uh, because, as you said, we are both consumers and workers. Uh, and so basically corporate America depends on us in both of those capacities. Right. Our purchasing power as consumers definitely floats this economy. Um, and right. so I do think there has to be more strategic alignment in how we use our limited incomes um, and how it aligns with our broader strategies as a movement. Um, and so that's where I think I would love to see more 
of labor getting into uh, alternative sources of 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 wealth and and looking at new types of businesses that we could go to beyond uh, simply relying on corporate America. Um, I think that's the toughest part, though, about a boycott is, and this speaks to, I think, a lot of the tough choices that so many of us face in this economy, is that, you know, for a lot of us, you're limited in, in what options you have, right? There may only be a Walmart. Mm-hmm. That may be the only place in town. Dollar General may be your only option in, in rural Alabama. Uh, and so we may know that Dollar General has terrible worker safety practices and terrible labor practices. We may know that they're kind of ripping us off as consumers, um, but then, you know, what else do we do? Um, and so I think that's a generational issue that that we're dealing with now in a way that maybe we didn't deal with as much 100 years ago when folks had uh, more sustainable communities, right, That where right. we could feed each other. We could look after each other's kids. I, I think th- I, th- I think that's actually it. We feed each other. We help each other. And you and Jacob are both right in that we have to we have to look at it more realistically and, and holistically. We have to figure out a way to make it work, and we can't be haphazard about any of these movements that we, it, we that we involve ourselves in. I, I'm I'm thinking that maybe I remember when I was in, in high school. Uh, I, I remember going. I I read a, a report uh, in my uh, economics uh, textbook. And it was talking about how in some urban communities uh, there were, the prices were higher. Uh, maybe the quality of, of produce at a grocery store was lower. And I decided to check, and there, there was a – I'm going to just call them out. There was a, a company, uh, the Wilson Brothers owned Wilson Food Stores or grocery stores. They had several of them in several different parts of town. And there was one particular one that was in my neighborhood. And here I am in the black neighborhood, and and, and I'm going in looking and comparing the price for a a loaf of bread or a head of lettuce, and I'm noticing that it's higher in this this part of town than it is over across town at the other store in the other neighborhood. And I asked one of the Wilsons, Mr. Wilson, why is it that it's more expensive here? And he came up with some excuse that didn't make a lot of sense and, and, and it was it made me so mad and I'm on, I'm in high school I stopped shopping at the grocery store in my neighborhood and I started driving five miles just mm. to get to the gross the nearest grocery store because I was determined and I know my 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 action didn't make a big uh, a ripple in, in in the overall pool I know it didn't but it, it felt good to me. I felt that I was making a difference. And I told people this is why I refused to go to the store around the corner because they charge us more. I, I think that if we did more of these conversations, that more people would get on board, and then we do make much more of an impact. But that, that is exactly what Jacob's saying. We've got we to gotta make sure that we're being smart about it. We've got to make sure that we are communicating with one another and that we're acting as a collective instead of individually. All these individual fights aren't as impactful as if we all ball up our fists together. I, I want to know something. I, I know that you guys have touched on it. You've, you've talked about it at length, as a matter of fact, but for somebody new who may be listening today, can you bring us up to speed on what happened with and what is now happening with Amazon? Sure. So the... Uh um, here in Alabama, the latest is that there is a hearing scheduled for January. So you'll remember about a year and a half ago, 
Um, there was a second election at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer where um, – uh, and and there was a second election because uh, it had to the the federal government ruled that it had to be rerun because Amazon had uh, broken the law too much <laughs> in the first election and interfered um, in the uh, in, in the election too much by um, you know by really intimidating illegally the employees there um, into voting no and so you know the NLRB said the National Labor Relations Board uh, said that. That was that couldn't have been a fair election. There was too much coercion and retaliation and all of this kind of stuff. So you got to do it again. Um, so that's what they did. And the second election, I think it was in March or April of twenty three, it ended again in a loss, uh, but much closer this time. Much closer the second time. I think it was uh, nine hundred. No to 700 some odd yes. So 55-45, I think, was the split. Uh, and then there are 400 challenged ballots. And so um, during the Can election process, the uh, d- mm-hmm. yeah, during the election process, it was a mail-in election. Once they got all of the, w- when you get all the mail-in ballots in, you basically take a look at the ballot and you look at the name on the envelope. You, you know, they've got a secret ballot envelope inside of that. But first, you got to validate, is this person a is it a is this person a legitimate voter? Right. So I, I look mm-hmm. at, you know, Lou Sally and I say, you know, Lou uh, was not an employee during the election period. He can't vote. So, you know, his yeah. vote is now challenged. His vote goes into the challenged bucket. And so they set aside all of the challenged ballots. Uh, the union and the employer both have the ability to challenge votes, challenge the eligibility of the voter. Um, and so there's 400 of those and they haven't been investigated yet. They're, or they're being investigated now um, as to whether or not these voters were eligible. And there's supposed to be a hearing in January determining the status of these ballots and whether or not they'll be counted and then counting the challenged ballots. So the challenged ballots could theoretically change the election and turn it into a win for the union, um, but it is also possible and probably more likely uh, that it does not change the um, change, change the status of the election, um, in which case it is possible that there could be a third run of the election because uh, like in the first time, Amazon again violated uh, the National Labor Relations Act with respect to their employees' right to vote uh, however they wish in a union election. And so uh, the union has filed a complaint uh, with the National Labor Relations Board, and and it's possible that and and that's another thing that the hearing in January is supposed to rule on is whether or not uh, the election needs to be rerun. So um, still kind of up in the air. And you know another story about that that is important for folks to understand is that uh, you know you might ask. Why the heck is it taking so long <laughs> to do this? Right. And that's because the National Labor Relations Board is uh, just criminally underfunded. They have been uh, basically flat funded since 2014. Um, they got something like an 8% increase in the budget last year, but that doesn't even keep them up with where they were at the beginning of the pandemic before all this huge inflation set in. And so uh, the National Labor Relations Board, I think at this point, has half the staff that it did 
20 years ago, um, and they have more elections and a bigger workforce that they're supposed to be overseeing. And so you can imagine that that makes it difficult. There's a long line of stuff going on that they've got to investigate, elections that they have to hold. And um, that's the way that, you know, Republicans and their corporate donors want it. Right. <laughs> so um, and so that that's what's happening in in, in Alabama. Uh, we, of course, know that, you know, the Amazon Labor Union, an independent union, uh, won a union election, the first uh, ever victorious union election at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York. Um, since then, they lost a second election in Albany and there have not been any other Amazon elections that I'm aware of, I don't think. And so we're kind of in a limbo uh, at this. Right now, with the fight at Amazon, but uh, as far as you know, results or, or seeing any movement or anything like that, I do. Uh, there are some Amazon delivery drivers out in California that are on strike, um, but uh, you know, Amazon is very good at um, you know scaring people into uh, you know not unionizing. I'm wondering, Jacob, if the threat of these votes the th- and the fact that the the difference has, has reduced, and now you're looking at 55-45, so it's pretty close. Is the threat of this union causing Amazon to change any of their practices and get better? Uh, so they, one of the things are that— Are they reacting in any way positively? Yeah, some uh, some of the em- employees down in Bessemer in Alabama told us that— um, they were actually no votes in the first one and then yes votes in the second election because of, um, you know, because nothing has changed, actually. Uh, you know, they were told during the first election that, oh, you know, if you you give us a, give us another chance. Right. <laughs> give us another chance as like an abusive spouse. Uh, give me one more chance and 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 you won't be sorry. Um, and and so uh, several people voted no. Um, and uh, uh and then, you know, nothing changed, more or less. Um, and so that, you know, across the country, there have certainly not been any big changes to the working conditions of Amazon employees. Uh, they're still, by and large, you know, making between 15 and 20 an hour, uh, which is just not, you know, that that's... That's fine for like a high school student or a college student, right? If you're that's your first job and you just want a little extra spending money or whatever, you don't have rent to pay, you live at home. But, you know, if you're an adult, you've got to pay rent. <laughs> God forbid you have a family. Uh, 20 an hour, 15 an hour is just it's not enough. Uh, certainly without a pension or good health care. And so, um, so, you know, and that's that's why, uh, you know, there, there's so much discontent. All right. So now I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. So for small businesses who are struggling just to survive, because we, we don't we don't get the same incentives that uh, large corporations do. We don't get those tax breaks. We don't get, you know, all of these, these wonderful things that that the government will do for and I don't mean just the state government, I'm talking about city government, I'm talking about county government, will do for for these larger corporations because they're supposed to be job creators and whatever. But small small businesses that are just trying to survive, how does does what you do, you know, in, in terms of advocating for workers' rights, how does that affect small businesses? Um, I mean, I, I think it, it, it affects them in the sense that I think that any worker uh, 
has the right and deserves a union and collective bargaining and all, all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, the the and but but I, I say all the time that, you know, employees do not want to destroy the businesses that they work for. That would not even make sense from a self-interested yeah, perspective. Yeah. They want it to be, uh, they want it to be sustainable, but they want it to do, you know, everything that it can to, um, have a good living for the, the workers that work there. And so one of the things that, that you'll, during the collective bargaining process that, um, that employers have to do under the National Labor Relations Act. And this is another thing, actually. The National Labor Relations Act does not apply to businesses, does not apply to retail businesses if they have a gross annual income volume of business less than $500,000. So if you're a very small business, you know, you're actually exempt from the NLRA, which I personally would disagree with. I think that in anybody, you know, if you employ somebody, then, then you know, you should have to follow the, the you know, the rules as far as it, especially as it relates to a person's union rights. But, you know, during the collective bargaining process, what employers have to do is they have to uh, reveal, you know, reveal their books where the information is relevant. And if you actually, as a small business owner, or even as a large business owner, if you're able to actually make the case persuasively that this particular thing you're asking for, employees, is not sustainable for us as a business, we will go under, uh, then uh, virtually uh, in, in all cases, the employees will accept that and they'll not go after that. As long as there's a good faith effort being made by the employer and, and uh, being shown by the employer. And that's, in fact, what unions have done time and time and time and time and time again. Uh, in, in particular, you know, we've been talking about the UAW and the big three. The UAW is blamed amazingly for the collapse of the auto industry when, in fact, the UAW is responsible in large part for saving it because they were willing to take huge cuts to their pay, to their pensions, to their health care. They lost billions of dollars in compensation to save on top of the taxpayers giving billions of dollars to the auto industry. And so, you know, because... The members of the UIW and the leadership saw the books and they saw that, you know, you actually really do need us to take something of a hit. And so we will because we want the company to survive. And so, you know, that that's what ha uh, that's what workers are willing to do to keep their businesses afloat. And uh, because they you know, I'm going to I'm going to agree with that because I, I know that my team here is wanting to do the best thing for the overall business because they understand how important it is. So I'm, I'm glad you, you, you pointed that out. I want to talk about AI. I, I want to know what your thoughts are about what's going on in Hollywood, what, what has been, uh, what still is, and whether AI is going to be a factor in, uh, is it something that we need to be concerned about as laborers across the board? Are we going to lose jobs to artificial intelligence? Um, I think that, you know, it, 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 it's difficult to say exactly how much of an impact a technology is going to have before it has the impact. But I think that almost certainly there's going to be some amount of automation with AI and there's going to be some amount of uh, hours of labor needed lost, right? You're going to need some amount of hours less of labor 
to create certain products. I think that's virtually inevitable. And I think as far as predictions go, that's one that I'm comfortable making. And so um, the the only question for that is, is who is the beneficiary of it? Right. You know, labor has been typically um, self-interestedly just opposed to automation in general. You know, they fight automation because they, they because they see rightly that it's going to result in job losses. But it, it doesn't have to be that way. It could be that, you know, if automation saves 10% of the time it's needed to create a widget, then the workers could retain create more widgets. The sa- do what? They could create they could make more widgets. Well, they could create more widgets or they could retain retain the same salary and work less. Right. Because, you know, I mean, that's that that's another option instead of it being the case that all of the productivity gains are taken by the people at the top. You know, I mean, it just Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be that way. And so we could bargain it. Uh, we could bargain shorter work weeks in our contracts. That's something that the UAW has kind of put out there as a, a as an idea and and is something that people in Europe have fought for and won. Thirty five hour work weeks uh, in many industries like in Germany that. and France. Yeah, I like that. Now we we we've, we've improved the quality of life. Exactly, we're improving the quality yeah. of life. We are giving more people more freedom. Um, and the company is still making the same amount of revenue. Uh, I'm still making the same amount of money. It should be a win-win, but that's only if we are able to, to you know, um, force that concession at the bargaining table. Uh, because, of course, if, you know, if left up to their own devices, they're going to take all of the extra profits and they're not going to give us any. Exactly. And so we've got to make sure that we've got the power to force those concessions. All right, but that means that we have to stay on top of it. We have to be as aware of what's coming down the pike as we possibly can. So we de- we depend on you for that. We need to know what we need to be thinking about, what we need to be fighting for, what we need to be talking to our legislators about, our congressmen and women about. So thank you for staying on top of it and, and making sure that we're on top of it too. Really appreciate what you do. Is there something else that you know of that we need to be thinking about, we who are out here as part of the working class and we who are out here as consumers? consumers, What do we need to be thinking about, worried about, concerned about, working toward? Um, Yeah, magic wand. What would you make us do next? Uh, well, I mean, the magic wand I, I would think <laughs> that, that I would encourage people to do is to form a union in your workplace. Um, you know, the okay. the thing that that I you know, the w- w- one of the things that I've always found very persuasive is, is that, you know, if, if we in America have, you know, a very strong kind of democratic small d ethos. Um, and so, you know, we when we see politicians, you know, we think that, you know, we should have a say in what they do and what our country does and what our government does. And yet for the majority of our waking lives, when we clock into work, we clock out of our rights as a citizen. 
Um, we give up all of the freedoms that we have as as a citizen of the United States, um, and and we enter into what is in many ways, you know, like a dictatorship. And um, and what unions do is is they they inject some amount of democracy into uh, into that relationship and give give workers some amount of say in what goes on. And and I think that that that's something that that we all deserve. We all deserve a say in what happens in our life and 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 things that affect us. And then by doing that, by unionizing your workplace and hopefully getting a good contract, then you become part of a movement that has been at the center of every freedom struggle in the last 150 years in the United States. And um, and and you can utilize your power in the community to do even more for even more people. Um, so, so yeah, the, join a union. <laughs> yeah, and I just want to chime in there to say that I think you know, when everyday people come together and unite around our common interests, we can really do amazing things. Uh, and so that's what I would encourage folks is to always be organizing, uh, to be having conversations with folks and building relationships built in solidarity with folks. Uh, and, you know, be willing to fight for someone you don't even know. Be willing to show up for folks um, and, and recognize that an injury to one is an injury to all. Um, because personally, I do believe that a better Alabama really is possible. I think interracial people power is the way we're going to get there. Um, the vast majority of us are working class. The working class is the most diverse class. And as you pointed out earlier, Tori, uh, there's been a lot spent to divide and conquer every everyday working people, uh, whether it's yeah. along race or gender, religion, nationality. You know, so many ways in which they try to divide us and keep us apart, but we really do have a lot in common because we all want a life of respect and dignity. We all want to be able to take care of our families and spend time with our families and come home safely to our families. Um, we all want to have a community that's safe, uh, where our kids can thrive, where they can be educated, and where we can have a better future that we provide for the next generation. Uh, those are things that we can unite around. And there are concrete policies that we can enact in this state and in this country uh, that could bring us closer to that vision. Uh, but it's going to take everyday people standing together uh, from the bottom up because that's so much of our history demonstrates that change comes from the bottom up, uh, whether it's the civil rights movement, the women's movement, or, of course, our labor movement. Um, it takes regular people, people who are listening, everyday folks, you know, we have power when we stand together and we get to know each other and we have each other's back. I very much agree with you. I do, however, understand enough of human nature to know that, that most folks are out there going, what's in it for me? How do I benefit from joining this fight? I think that in, to, to answer that, we have to figure out where our shared interests are. So I'm thinking, for example, of, uh, you know, there's an, there was an article in, in one of our, our local newspapers recently, uh, well, actually a few months ago, uh, talking about how uh, small businesses are benefited by local news, local newspapers. Newspapers are in trouble. Uh, they, they, they've been in a fight. Uh, a lot of their, their um, information has been used without compensation by uh, – social media, by the internet. Uh, and so you've got newspapers that are in trouble that are, that are folding. You've got radio stations that maybe don't have as much money as they could. 
but but what, what you're doing with us, what Valley Labor Report does with WVVA is we are benefiting one another. We're telling your story. We're giving you an opportunity to have a platform and tell your story. And at the same time, it's benefiting WZDA because we're, you know, we're, we're working together. I think that if we were to figure out how we can, can, can uh, combine our, our fights sometimes, we would, we would be that much more impactful. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at ways that we can find something that you're passionate about and that I'm passionate about and work together. And that way everyone has skin in the game and everyone is more likely to be actively involved in, in a more uh, productive and positive outcome. Yeah, that's yep. that's exactly right. And, and, you know, an issue that comes to mind is like the environment. A lot of times people want to pit labor unions and environmentalists against one another uh, yep. when these struggles are so interconnected, right? I mean, obviously, we all want a, a safe environment. We all want clean air. We all We all want clean... Uh, workplaces that are safe. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's easy for folks to get divided, but uh, we really do have a lot in common. And I think, you know, when we show up for one another um, and recognize that, yeah, we all are going to have different passions. We're all going to have different, you know, things that are pulling us in different directions. We all come from different backgrounds and perspectives. We all have our own struggles that we're going through. Um, and I think that's worth really, you know, reflecting on is that, the average person in this state, particularly in this state, in Alabama, in a, in a place where things are as rough as they are, you know, folks are struggling. They're going through a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. and so all we can do is, is try to show up for one another and, and make ask of people that are reasonable um, and, and see if we can just get them to move up one step closer to us, right? And every little step mm-hmm. and build on that uh, and go from there. But... You know, I think it. I think it is really, really important, though, that that folks are able to work together and and not uh, separate themselves into silos. That oh, well, this is my issue and that's your issue, and you know, you do your thing, I'll do mine. You know, we have to collaborate as much as we can. We have to co- uh, cooperate as much as we can, and actually communicate with each other. And and even if we don't agree on on strategies or tactics, um, if we can find areas where we recognize we're both trying to move the ball down the field when it comes to a yeah. better society. I very much agree. I want to say amen. I want to take a collection. <laughs> I think that was <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam. I, 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 there are so many things that you guys cover. Uh, I, I, I kind of like to get into the nuts and bolts of how you put your show together. How do you decide what the topic is going to be, who the guest is going to be, week to week. What, what do you, there are so many important things to talk about. How do you decide what's going to get the attention any given week? Mm. Well, one thing that, that makes it a little bit easier for us is that, is that we are, we, we do try to keep it pretty tight to union stuff. And so now you, you can't, you, you can take a very, very large view of, of what is a labor issue. And we do sometimes because, you know, uh, what, you know who who does everything in the country affect 
more than any other class. It's, it's the working class. You know, pe- working class exactly. people are affected by virtually I- anything, any issue that you can think of uh, affects workers in some way. And so you can definitely take a very broad view, but we do typically, and, and we do that sometimes, but typically we stick pretty narrowly to a traditional kind of labor uh, um you know, what is a labor issue? And, and so that narrows it down for us quite a bit. And when we are in moments like we are today with the UAW struggle, um, it, you know, that makes it certainly very easy as far as the programming, what to cover, uh, what kind of guests to get. But there's always stuff going on um, that we can cover. And, and so, you know, <laughs> there are some times where we have guests planned out months in advance <laughs> just because that's when our calendar and their calendar works together. Um but, you know, we uh, um, we have a couple of segments that we do last week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch where all that we do is really pull from government websites, you know, about what's going on and uh, and, mm-hmm. and give like a, a super kind of quick bullet list about, uh, you know, those issues. Um, and then the ones that we decide to dive deeper in um, – we definitely prioritize Southern stories, uh, what's happening in the South, because, of course, we're a Alabama union radio program. Um, so if it's happening in the South or it's happening in Alabama, uh, then we're v- a whole lot more likely to talk about it, to try to get a guest on to talk about it. Um, but, you know, the driving theme of the show is, is that we want to educate folks about, you know, the power that they have to make their lives better and how people are doing just that um, across the South and across the country and so um so we try to you know uh that, that's that's basically um you know how we and 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 so we, we see you know what comes across our social media feeds what comes across in the uh news outlets that we read and and we try to dig into things that are uh interesting to us and that we think that our audience would be interested in as well and if you haven't noticed jacob is pretty good at just riffing off this <laughs> um, and and so you know i can chime in when necessary uh, but we live and breathe this stuff. We are just passionate members of the labor movement and, and you know, we've been activists for years. And uh, so it's it. some of it's just, you know, this is what we do. This is what we believe. This is what we're about. You know, this is what we do throughout the week. And so it kind of comes natural. And um, and then some of it is, yeah, the, the prep process that, that he outlined. And, um, you know, we're volunteers. We we have full-time jobs outside of this, you know, this is just something we do as a passion project. And so sometimes, you know, it just depends on the week on how busy we've been and, mm-hmm. um, you know, how much, um, how much we just kind of go off the dome versus, you know, very <laughs> scripted. Uh, but we just try to put out a quality product that folks, you know, enjoy and we try to make it accessible to folks and, and not talk down to folks, but, but really, you know, share information and share knowledge that folks will find useful. Um, and even if they don't like what our opinions are, they don't necessarily like our politics, hopefully they at least feel like we respect them as listeners that, you know, we are trying to put out something that uh, is beneficial to folks. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully that comes across. And, you know, it, it, it's is- also... It's also been helpful as we've gotten, you know, modestly larger. We're coming up on a million views on YouTube. And so people are oh, wow. um, people are seeing us and, and they are and they're asking us to be on the show. They're pinging 
stories for us. And, and, you know, that person that I just talked about, Thomas Ricks, author of Waging a Good War, uh, their publicist mm-hmm. reached out to us. We had we had never heard of the book before, never heard of the guy mm-hmm. before, uh, but he's a Pulitzer mm-hmm. Prize winning journalist um, and his publicist asked us to be on the show. And so, you know, that's that's been helpful in the last year as, as we've gotten, you know, just a little bit larger. Online. Right. It's been amazing the <laughs> connections we've made with so many folks. I mean, here we are, we're talking with WZZA. We've talked with I mean, we're on a conservative station, WVNN. We have had guests from all over the country, all over the world even, some international guests. We've had uh, people in very high offices and also just rank-and-file working folks uh, and everything in between, you know, people with PhDs, people who write with big bylines and these big publications, but also just, uh, you know, activists in our community. Uh, and so that's that's been the most satisfying thing for me in this project is just the connections that we've made uh, and getting to connect other people to other folks who care about making things better. Uh, and that's, you know, if, if we can accomplish anything else, that's it. Just connect folks. I've listened to your show so often and it you, you seem to have sensible people on there. I'm curious as to how you would respond to someone who maybe is coming from an entirely different camp with an entirely different point of view, someone who maybe is wanting to get on your show and debate with you to advocate on behalf of those fat cats who are making all the money (laughs) uh, as opposed to the the workers who are out there making the the products that are selling. I'm wondering how you would react to someone who wants to get on and say, but wait, you know, uh, my pillow guy, I, I, wait, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm poor too. I, I need you to go fund me so I can pay my attorney because I'm, <laughs> I'm being sued for all these things. You know, how, how would you react to someone like that who would, who would like to, to, to weigh in on your show? Uh, Jacob would love it. I would probably <laughs> uh, be less inclined. Uh, my approach would be Jacob different. Would really yeah, I... In the room with him. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I, I do enjoy... Um, I, I enjoy debate and, you know, how I, how I would treat my interlocutor would really kind of depend on how much, uh, where they're coming from and, and, you know, how much respect I have for them as a person. Right. If it's just like a, a con- if it's like a conservative union member, right. Who's calling in and we mm-hmm. have those, um, for better and for worse. And they're asking my yeah. perspective, you know, I, I'm going to be very comradely in my discussion with them and, and, you know, uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and you know, I'm I'm typically very respectful of of anybody. You know, if I'm if I'm talking to them, if I'm having a discussion with them on their show or mine, um, but uh, depending on how belligerent they can that they get, I would be willing to get belligerent as well, or how silly you know how silly their argument is. Um, but yeah. uh, but I, I I and we have had a few. There's not very many times that we do that because you know. Um, we just, you know, we only have so much time, right? And so we have to decide how much. Waste it with, yeah, with I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, how much time do I want to give to a crank who's like, oh, won't somebody think of the CEOs, right? But you know, <laughs> but uh, but um, it's not something that that we have never done. Uh, we've had we've had Republicans on the show to talk about. Um, in particular, we had you know the fellow. I don't know if you remember that anti-protest law that that they tried to push in the last session. Yeah. We had the author of that bill on the show, and we talked to him for an hour. Um, <laughs> it was something else. It was something else, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so. I, I've had some very interesting conversations with some of our elected officials from this area about some of the stances they've taken from everything from that anti-protest to 
making it more difficult for someone to vote. Mm. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, right. and we just we, we've got a lot that we need to, to unpack in, in coming months about that. You know, we've got an election year coming up next year. Uh, but I, I wanted to, to jump to something else right quick before I lose you guys. You've got you, you you just mentioned that there are conservative union workers. There may be someone out there who who kind of veers to the other side, who thinks, wait a minute, I, I, I'm 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 a Republican and I'm a union worker. You're going to have you, your iron workers and your you know your electricians and all these different people who may have different points of view. How do you herd the cats? You guys are union, so you're kind of you're you're trying to to get everybody to work together and for one collective goal, yeah. So how do how do you make sure that everyone's voices are heard, and that they keep their eye on the ball, so that we, we all remember we're all really members of one team. How do you do that? Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, Adam, I'm I'm interested in, in <laughs> what you have to say because Adam has Adam has had a lot more experience in 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 that specifically, a lot more actual like real world experience. He was uh, the staffer for the uh, AEA in Huntsville, uh, representing like 1,500 teachers. And you know, I don't know how many teachers you know in Alabama, but contrary to what you'll hear on like conservative talk radio, uh, they're not all Marxists. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, exactly. Right. That's, that's true. That. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I think building relationships based in trust is is huge. Um, and the labor movement is very diverse ideologically. The, the working class is very diverse. And so, yeah, we have folks who uh, belong to labor unions and maybe will agree on certain aspects of, you know, fighting for a good contract, for example, or representing their coworkers against abusive practices at work. But then when it comes to maybe social issues or cultural issues, there's a lot of, you know, dissension. Um, and, and I see that a lot in our movement um, where there is, you know, dissent and, and, and division to some degree between, you know, maybe more progressive folks and and more conservative folks, um, you know, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to issues like race and gender, policing, criminal justice, those issues can be very divisive. And, and in fact, we've kind of gotten mm-hmm. in trouble with some union folks before. Um, you know, we've gotten pushback from folks for some of the stances we've taken, but we try to look mm-hmm. at, you know, what is best for working people? Um, and what is a, what is a policy's impact on them? Um, what is a politician's actions impact on them? What is, you know, a police officer's actions uh, impact on them? But how is an, a regular working class person impacted? And we stand with those people and we try to take our stances based on that and, and you know, listen to folks and, and try to build respect and have good conversations around it, recognizing that it's not always going to work. Um, but when you do, when you fight for folks, um, even when you disagree, you can build a lot of power and relationships there. And I had success with folks who disagree with me politically, but were willing to show up to me at that school board meeting or willing to show up and sign up a new member uh, you know, or, or take an action and write their legislator, even if they didn't agree with me about immigration or didn't agree with me about abortion. Um, but we could find common ground and through that hopefully build, you know, the, the foundation for future collaboration and see where it takes us. You know what? That makes so much sense. And I, I'm thinking, because I was so frustrated 
and it breaks my heart sometimes because I think that people sometimes vote against their own self-interest because they are distracted by those 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 red meat topics like abortion or like gay marriage or like immigration or whatever. And sometimes we forget that really that's not the focus. That's not what we should be worried about so much. That is not what is going to to impact my family or my life or my home or whatever. And, and we need to be thinking about, think, you know, voting for those things and those people who stand for us and who will actually impact our own bottom lines. And so we can't be distracted by those other topics, but, but, they, but they've been very effectively used by one party in particular to divide and conquer us. So we've got to remember that we stand together for a reason and, and, and that it's important for us to continue to do so. And you've helped to make that happen by having these conversations today. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tori. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate you. All right. I, I want to do this again and, you know, when I'm not all met it up, so we, <laughs> we can even maybe stay on some topics. But I, I think that we covered quite a bit of ground today. And, I, and I'm, I've actually been taking notes while I've been talking with you. So I'm going to be revisiting some of this. But I, I, I want to thank you for the information that you've shared. I want to thank you for what you do every week for us and for giving us a chance to just kind of, you know, eavesdrop in on your conversations. Jacob, keep fighting the fight. Adam, keep him straight. <laughs> keep him out of jail. Make sure you keep the, the bun money just in case you have to go get, fetch him out of jail sometime. I will do the same. I thank you all for listening, all of you out there who are listening to WZCA Radio, and I thank the Valley Labor Report for this conversation today. All right. This has been Saturday in the Shelves on WZCA. All right. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, we do need to wrap. Uh, we've got a meeting uh, that we are now four minutes late for. What? Uh, I'll tell you about it in a second, Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> You forgot. I did tell you already, but yes. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, we, we do have a 1 p.m. meeting, uh, so uh, we're going to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, don't forget uh, that we have Shop Talk on Thursday mornings. Uh, don't forget about the People's Town Hall in Huntsville on Tuesday, November 14th. Uh, Jacob, you got anything else before we wrap? Nope, that's it. See you next week, folks. <laughs> <laughs>